I, I didn't think I ever told anyone on the podcast before, but after the first eight months, I almost quit because I was just getting so many angry messages from the community that made me realize like, oh man, what are you do good things or bad things? People always find things to nitpick you and drag you down. It took me a while to overcome that and be like, okay, like I have a stronger purpose in life. Like I, I need to be here. This organization needs to exist. So I push forward. But then just be, be in a position where it's like you're facing the full Asian diaspora and the generational trauma and the hatred <laughs> and the competitiveness. Yeah. It's really hard to like face a full on against 80,000 people. Welcome to the Will and Lee Hi, as always, I have my co-hosts Lee Chang and Andrew Sue with me. We have Brian Pham here with us today. Brian is the co-founder of Asian Hustle Network, a community that amplifies Asian entrepreneurial voices. Brian and his co-founder slash girlfriend, Maggie Chu, started Asian Hustle Network as an incredibly engaged Facebook group that has 80,000 members. Asian Hustle Network has grown into a platform that serves Asian American entrepreneurs in different ways, from hosting a podcast with over 100 episodes, interviewing incredibly high-profile and accomplished entrepreneurs, including Justin Khan co-founder of Twitch, Jason Ma, co-founder of 88 Rising, and Patrick Lee, co-founder of Rotten Tomatoes. So producing Asian Hustle Network Conference 2022, one of the first conferences for Asian Americans, and the Asian Hustle Network Accelerator, helping Asian American women start businesses. Previous to Asian Hustle Network, Brian worked as a software engineer and is passionate about real estate. Not only has he been investing in real estate, but he also built a real estate meetup with over a thousand members. Welcome, Brian. Thank you guys so much for having me here today. I appreciate it. So I remember when Asian Hustle Network first started, my brother Albert is in the same fraternity as you as UC Irvine. He invited me to the Facebook group pretty early on. And at the time I was blown away by the quality of the posts and the insane engagement. I actually posted my first episode of this podcast about my story in the Facebook group and it blew up. So I just wanted to dive right in and ask you, tell us a little bit about how you started Asian Hustle Network. Yeah, yeah, I think Asian Hustle Network was a series of things that happened to me that made me question everything. As you mentioned, I worked as a software engineer in San Francisco. And I guess that ongoing joke in the city was, wow, San Francisco is getting really white. And <laughs> I guess none of us really questioned that. We're just like, okay, we just totally accepted the way it is. Until like, like, I guess my friends and I started realizing that, wait, wait a minute, like, why are we getting passed up for manager positions? Why is this happening so often? That's when we took a step back and looked at the bigger picture and be like, whoa, there are so many things stacked against us. There's the glass ceiling, there's the bamboo ceiling, there's the, the mono minority myth. And as I started deep diving into that, it was like, okay, why isn't no one speaking up? What is going on here? Like, I can't be the only one that feels this way. So that's one premise. The other premise was, I guess, when I was doing real estate and we got into pretty big real estate projects, like real estate development, apartments and everything, we started to realize how segregated the Asian community really is. Because I remember distinctly, I ran into a problem in one of my projects. Like, and then people were like, go to the Vietnamese community, they'll help you out. I'm like, why not the Chinese community? Why not the Korean community? Why not the Japanese community? Why not the Philippine community? What's going on here? And I realized... The real estate world, and not just the real estate world, people stay to their subgroup. And there's so much segregation that happens already. 
And with both experience, that made me wonder like, okay, unless we work together and band together, we're not going to push any change. So still that, that did not create Asian Hustle Network yet. It wasn't until Maggie and I went to Japan that I was talking to her for seven months already. I'm like, we should do something for the Asian community. I just don't know what that is. And when we were in Japan, we went to the Meiji Shrine and we saw people write their stories on the wall, like these wooden tablets in the Meiji Shrine. And I was so drawn into everyone's story, even though I had no idea who these people were. I saw names from around the world, but it captivating me to like go there and continue reading because I found myself being in a position where I could relate to a lot of these stories and maybe feel like I had a sense of community on a wall <laughs> in, in Japan. You know, and then I, it's so powerful that I remember writing that down on my phone. I'm like, we connect each other through stories. I remember distinctly writing that on my phone. And then when I got back to America, this group called Subtle Asian Trades blew up. And I'm like, wait a minute, Facebook groups are in now. Why don't I create a Facebook group and embody everything that I was learning and believe? And, and lo and behold, the group just blossomed overnight because a lot of people can relate to, well, I was trying to, and me and Maggie were trying to build a shout out to like you, Will, and the early people in the community, because you guys took essentially this random weird guy on the internet's mission and turned it into reality. So shout out to all the early members that cultivated this culture, because I'm pretty sure as you guys all know, in your professional careers, culture is something that cannot be built by one person. It's built by everyone in the community or company. So shout out to you guys. I really appreciate it. How did you guys see the content? Because each of those posts, especially early on, were so long. There's a lot of vulnerability. How did you see that content in the very beginning? How did you build that precedence? It was hard because we had to strategically think about it. And the thing is, at the very beginning, I manually asked my friends who have really great stories to share their story, but then they will not do it unless I do it. And I, I still don't know how people today share their story in the community because I remember I shared my story to like 50 people and I, I remember uh, checking it every single five minutes because I'm so paranoid because I'm like, oh my God, people are reading my story. And now it's like over 80,000 people still sharing their story. And shout out to the new members because that, that's so nerve-wracking. You have no idea how you guys do it. Yeah, this is a very quality post. I'd imagine because you have 80,000 members or even in the beginning when people didn't really know what to post, you probably have a lot of content that you have to moderate. How do you moderate that content and make sure the posts are high quality? Yeah, so it, it's not just on me. It falls on my team as well. So we have an idea of the criteria that we're looking for. Typically, we tend to look for posts that offer quality value a story that is relatable for us as with and offering key points and really embodying the value that we have, which is give first before you take. And if the post sort of embodies those three values, we typically let it through. As you know, with any large Facebook group or any Facebook group or anything in general, a lot of people resort to promotion and that's not what we're trying to look for. We're still trying to maintain the integrity and quality of the group. So we try to go for those three criteria. One thing I've learned over the last 10 years is that nothing is by accident, right? Anything that goes viral or anything that blows up, there's a lot of work behind it. And so in order to get to 80,000 members, you had to build your audience. And a lot of that probably was very strategic or a lot of it was hard work. 
Can you tell us a little bit about how you built that distribution to build up your audience and community? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you guys know already. The biggest thing is consistency. You had to consistently put forth the best effort every day in order to see any sort of result. But the hardest part for us is maintaining our team because in their first year, we were largely bootstrapped. And again, we're just tying people together through the mission that we had. So that, that was really difficult. And I guess, yeah, all, all, all the hard work, we had to tie everything back to why we're doing this. But a lot of it is very unsung work where you, you get the first to get credit for helping the community evolve to the first to get blamed. And then after, I didn't, I didn't think I ever told anyone on the podcast before, but after the first eight months, I almost quit because I was just getting so many angry messages from the community that made me realize like, oh man, what are you doing? Good things or bad things? People always find things that pick you and drag you down. It took me a while to overcome that and be like, okay, like I have a stronger purpose in life. Like I, I need to be here. This organization needs to exist. So I push forward, but then just being be in position where it's like you're facing the full Asian diaspora and the generational trauma and the hatred <laughs> and the competitiveness yeah. is really hard to like face a full on against 80,000 people. But yeah, a lot of it just fits back into our mission and what we're trying to build and what we're trying to do and staying consistent with that and always staying, always putting our best intentions forward is, is really important. I'd imagine that you are doing this for free for a long period of time and you probably had a lot of friends that were also doing for free that you recruited. And I'm curious in terms of what type of message were you getting? And how were you feeling at that time when kind of like stuff was rough for you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh man, this is a pretty good question, you know? Yeah, uh, I had never really talked about or even processed what I was feeling. <laughs> so. Let's take a moment, take a step back, so process that right now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, man. It, yeah, I mean, it's a big load to take, right? Because yeah, I, man. Um, there's so many people with a lot of different, I mean, in the community, there's like a lot of different needs and wants. And yeah, it's really different. And you're doing a lot of all this work for free. And I'd yeah. imagine you haven't really found a business model at that time yet. And so, yeah, it must have been really tough. Yeah, especially at the macro level, it helps you understand not just like the Asian community, but how humans interact and act in general and what we're drawn to. I guess it helped me see stuff at the macro level. It's like everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants to have purpose. Everyone wants to have security. Everybody wants to feel good about themselves and or, and or impress the other people of the same sex or different sex. At the core, I think I read over like a million posts or eight million posts for me to be like, this is my conclusion of the human race. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I guess like some of the posts were really mean. They're just like, like questioning everything that we do. It's like, why do you guys even exist? Like, you get along or like, it's like. You guys favor one group or the other. It's almost like very elementary playground stuff, you know? And to you taking a step back and thinking about it, you're like, man, like essentially adults are just older kids with the same problems. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you start thinking it that way. What really got me through again, it was like, oh man, it's, it's, it's the other side of the spectrum, right? Because as human beings, we tend to focus on the negative things a lot. And, uh, and sometimes that outweighs the positive. 
I guess the, the positive things are like people encouraging me, sending me really positive messages, but more importantly, people who had depression, people who had mental health illness or people even contemplating suicide that reach out to me and be like, Hey, thank you so much for creating this community. Like I felt really lonely to the point where, you know, a lot of bad things could happen. And seeing those type of pulses, like, oh man, like, I need to continue doing this because these are people who are brave enough to tell me these things. What about the people who are not brave? You know, and that part really got me pushing forward through the darkest times. Because as you mentioned, I wasn't egotistic going in any single way. But <clears throat> I, I was like, man, like, I was making pretty good salary as self-engineered, like, real estate development and whatnot. And I gave it all up. I put everything so I could focus on the HLS network. And I just remember like it was incredibly difficult, like the first eight, nine months, not paying myself a single dime, watching my savings dwindle while reading negative comments about my character. <laughs> it was like, this is the worst. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Oh yeah. But that, I mean, these positive messages and knowing that this organization is not like a normal company where mission driven was pushing me forward. And as you guys know, it's like when, when you want to work from so hard, the universe sort of just helps you off. Right. Yeah. And I slowly, I found like 90% of my investors through like LinkedIn that just DM me randomly. <laughs> They're just like, Hey, I love your mission. Can I invest? I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> what do you want to invest? We have no product. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. And then I started formulating a business plan, business model that work and started implementing, started hiring the right team around the, that vision. And now it's like, okay, like we're actually making like more hires. Like we're hiring three or four people. They have enough staff to help us with the conference in Las Vegas, which is like pretty insane. You know, but it, it really stems from like, if you don't quit long enough, the light is at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Keep your head up and keep moving forward. I want to ask more about building out your team, getting investment and the conference. But before we get there, I wanted to touch upon the changes that I'd noticed in the Asian Hustle Network Facebook group. Because I know a lot of the members in the Asian Hustle Network are entrepreneurs in the food business, a lot of boba shops, a lot of restaurants. And I noticed in, during the pandemic, a lot of Asian Hustle Network members started facing an existential crisis. And there was yeah. like a change in the type of posts that were coming up. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing? Yeah. So I'm not just too surprised about the food entrepreneurs because I tend to go out to a lot of food events. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, I love food. As <laughs> a result of... My hard work of eating the network is to more food entrepreneurs. <laughs> uh, I also think it's crazy too, because like the network, I guess whenever you create an organization, your personality sleep through the entire organization. Like it's crazy how sometimes it models after exactly how I feel at the moment. I was just like, oops, I gotta be positive. So yeah, at the beginning, it was obviously like very optimistic and very positive, but things got a little bit different during the pandemic, right? Especially the rise of Asian crime to the point where it was actually a lot of hard work on my team and myself. And only at the time we had like eight people or something moderating. Some of my team members actually laughed because they're like, I'm so sorry, but my mental health can't do this anymore. 
And then that's the part where I'm like, oh shoot, like community is probably really negative. I need to think of ways to uplift the community again. That's our mission. And I guess like just talking to people, writing surveys and understanding what's going on. A lot of people are paranoid because I mean, at the time in the early pandemic was like, is my business going to survive? Am I going to get hurt? Is my mom going to punch? My dad going to get punched? Or grandma or whatever that, that happened to like violence to my family. And this daunted a lot of people's mentality. And then finally I got a DM that someone challenged me. It's like, what is Asia Hustle Network going to do about all of this? And then I was really taken back by that question. I'm like, man, what are we going to do about this? So I decided to create hate is a virus, right? So hate is a virus went completely viral. It got featured by like Nike, Hennessy. There's my, my co-founders was filming a commercial with Henry Golding. It just went completely bananas. And it ended up raising like over a million dollars, right? So we actually use these funds to like support like the elderly. We also raise money in Asian House Network as well to support the Chinatown Patrol because we tried to address all the needs in our community. But at the same time, from a culture perspective, it's like, hey guys, stop turning against each other. This is time for us to preach unity, to work together in order to stand together, right? And this is the part where we supported a lot of new grassroots organizations, stand with, stand with Asian Americans. This is the part where we put away our competition side. We knew we were never competitive to begin with, but this is the part where we just really had to put our thoughts into action and really push forward. And eventually over time, it's like we saw like the quality of posts starting to increase again. We've been addressing these needs for the community. We're offering it out money we're offering out a grant this is crazy because the, the crazy part during that time is that we weren't generating any revenue or we're still giving away money <laughs> it's like it's so interesting so that kind of got me a feel for how it is to raise money for a purpose and that's led me down the path of like okay like how does this ape work how does what is convertible no what is it this you know can we possibly go for a series a like what is going on here you know and the answer when you're building on top of community is yes. With a community, it's like you could be anything, but the problem is you could also be anything. <laughs> you know, whereas like most people start out with a, pro a single problem and a single product and they know the target market. You start with a community that believes in your vision and you don't have you don't have a single product or a single target audience. And that is a big red flag for any venture people to look at. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And pitching the idea around that and raising money, finally refining ourselves even more. It's like, okay, like we can be a company and we can be venture back. You guys have raised money from venture investors and you guys are building a company around this community. That is right. That is right. Wow. That's amazing. That's yeah. great. What pitch did you settle on now? And I'm not saying it needs to be a pitch, but because I think we podcast talk about just how we can, or of the community we're building, how we can help. And so I think we've run into the same like amorphous problem. So yeah, what did you land on? And I'm, I'm sure it's evolving. Yeah. So we actually landed on like our directory slash marketplace. And what we really pitched was like being an early stage Amazon, because that is sort of true because a lot of people community actually have products and services to sell. And that has been the staple that we've been raising on is those two cores. But on top of that, we also pitched that we are really heavily into events. So we had three pillars. And the path that we're actually heading towards for now is we're also in the process of building like Asian Netflix. Right. The reason why I say that 
is because a lot of creatives are in your community that constantly reach out to me and we realize one problem over and over. There's a lot of Asian talent out there that are being overlooked for the same reason why I started Asian Hustle Network. It's because we're never really seen as dominant or leader or whatever it is, right? So I think one of the propositions that we finally came up with was like, okay, how do we showcase our talent in a better way? But now actually fulfill our mission of connecting the East and West, right? How do we sign in like these movies that we love as a kid into a platform that only focuses on Asian content, right? How do we still promote the newer talent in our community without them having been blocked by YouTube algorithms or Instagram algorithms or whatever algorithm, right? How do we provide a talent for a new portal of people to exist? How do we secure the funding for them? How do we do the distribution for them? And that finally led us down the path of like, okay, we should be an Asian Netflix. What an Asian Netflix eventually is that we want to be able to control our own production, to control our own narrative. We want to tell the stories through the lens of the people in our community of what we see and feel. And we feel like this resonates with our mission and our core mission a lot more. So we've been pivoting towards that avenue and raising money for it. Wow. So, so that sounds extremely ambitious. And one question I had in terms of how you're looking at distribution or even just platforms that, you know, now that you guys have such a huge community on Facebook, how are you thinking about potentially expanding off Facebook or, you know, are there different initiatives on that front? Yeah, we started expanding out of Facebook already. We realized that it's never wise to build on top of anyone's platform. We're trying to move the traffic back to our website slowly but surely, but we also been growing pretty rapidly on Instagram, on TikTok, and really target the niche audience on each platform. Like we produce content that, that resonates with Gen Zers on TikTok. We produce content that are more news related and on Instagram too, it's more relatable to millennials, right? We understand that Facebook isn't the only platform. At the same time, all these things act as funnels for our eventual Asian Netflix on our website. That's what we want. Yeah, I've noticed uh, you guys create a lot of content, including the Instagram, including the TikTok. But the one I'm really interested in is the podcast. And and the reason why is because one of my goals when I first started out was like, I want to do 100 episodes. It's because consistency is something that I have a hard time with. And so I saw that you guys hit 100 episodes and I was just really impressed because I know how hard it takes. I've listened to a bunch of your interviews. I think Maggie is an incredible interviewer. My favorite episode is Chris Doe's interview. Nobody. Content creation. Like he's incredibly compelling. And so I have a ton of questions about your process because I just want to learn from you because you're the master. And so, <laughs> first thing is like, how did you get started with the podcast? So I actually had a real estate podcast for Asian Hustle Network. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's when I made all my mistakes. I stutter. I didn't edit correctly. I've been a lot of people asking the wrong questions. <laughs> uh, luckily, real estate people are a lot more forgiving than the Asian community. <laughs> yeah, so I actually got like a head start. I didn't produce like 80 episodes or something. For, oh, wow. And that really got me into the, the process. Like, how do I create a system of processes that we target certain values of the podcast? And like, that actually got me really brave reaching out to like people who like built a Salesforce tower in San Francisco on the podcast, who had done some pretty gnarly things. And I'm like, wait a minute, if I could do this with other people in other 
communities. Why can't I bring this back to the Asian community? And for the longest time, like I hesitated creating an Asian hustle number podcast because I know how much work there is. And at the time, like I don't want to create two podcasts. It sounds like death. Well, <laughs> 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 like we eventually ran surveys and people were like, Hey, I want to listen to more Asian entrepreneur voices. And then I convinced me. The hardest part was actually dropping one of their podcasts. I focused mm-hmm. on this podcast. It was so like gut wrenching. Like, oh, I'm dropping one of their baby for this baby. What if it doesn't do well? Or what if people don't like it? <laughs> you know, all these yeah. things. But yeah. So let's quickly talk through the system the process of the podcast real quick. Yeah. Tell us about your prep process. Tell, tell us about the entire process for you. Yeah. yeah. So we have, as you guys know, we have a team of about 12 people right now. And thing is, we have a funnel checklist on itself of people that catches our eye. And we're also extremely mindful of like what Asian they are. Like, are you South Asians? Are you Southeast Asian? Are you East Asian? And break that down. And we try to make a rotation in their selection process that is pretty even throughout the Asian diaspora because we are an Asian hustle network community that embodies also to Asian background, right? So that part was probably the most difficult. It was like, well, as you guys understand, it's like, a lot of people who qualify for what we're trying to look for are normally East Asian men. But how do we give voices to people who are essentially still very underserved in our own community and really highlight them because knowing that these nuances of like, hey, we have a Filipino guest or we have an Indian guest or we have whatever guest makes a difference for these kids who are striving to do more in their lives, to see someone of their own ethnic group rise to the top. I mean, of course, in the bigger spectrum, when we see an Asian person in mainstream media, we're more inclined to support them. But as like in the Asian podcast, like we now have to focus on the nuances. So we want to make sure. So season one was definitely more of like, how can we get like the more established people to be in the podcast? And we haven't formally announced this yet, but our season two is coming out. And our season two is more focused on activists. They're more focused on community organizers, more focused on politicians because these people are making a huge difference for everyone in the community. So we have a general focus on what we want to focus on. But in terms of like the reporting and editing process, we get everything on Zoom, we get everything virtual, kind of similar to how you guys do things on Zencaster. But we also have the production team in the Philippines. So I learned that editing everything from my real estate podcast by myself burned me out like crazy. I was like, oh my God, I'm, I had to produce an episode a single week and I have four hours where it goes live. I'm going to have to forget edit this thing right now. I'll do all the graphics for most of very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so this time we're a lot smarter. You know, we actually hired a production team in the Philippines that cost us probably less than a thousand a month to do. And this includes like. TikTok reels, Instagram reels, Instagram reels, TikTok videos, YouTube shorts, snippets, editing, podcast, cover, helping out with transcription as well. It's crazy. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to learn more about this. So full-time team, like they're employees of you or is it contract work on as need basis? So I hired them through this website called onlinejobs.ph, which is a virtual assistant website. And I look for a sound engineer and I look for a graphic designer. So each of their salary is still less than about 
or a thousand USD. So they definitely helped me save a lot of time and effort. But the thing with working with overseas staff is that you have to be very clear with everything that you want. Otherwise, it sometimes can be taken very literally. <laughs> you know, like I want yeah. all the fellas edited out of the podcast. This happened before and all the fellas are gone. <laughs> oh no, I already felt weird. So another question is record the content to support all those different cuts. So you had already gotten all that experience from the real estate podcast, but do you have a checklist for that? Or is it as simple as like, you know, you have to turn on a video, use Zencaster and that's enough? Yeah, or I had, had a checklist. Yeah, we have a complete checklist. We have a complete one pager that we send out to people. And we have like five one pagers, one cater towards every single industry. And it's like business or activists or politicians. These are questions that we're going to ask you. You know, and then we also have a similar to you guys as well. Any questions that you like to ask on the podcast? And you realize a lot of these people are kind of busy. So they just sort of, oh, I'm good. So these those always end up following your, your one pager, but that saves a lot. Also, I listen to a lot of their podcasts throughout the entire week to make sure that I'm asking the right content. But also, I still have my production team look into the background some more to make sure that I don't miss any key information moving forward so it takes a, a whole team uh, so shout out to my philippines team i love them i don't know how any of this would happen to the album that's incredible yeah that's awesome it's a nugget right there how do you reach out to such high quality guests because you guys have a lot of high quality guests so how do you get them to agree to work with you guys yeah this is a part where we sort of use our, our branding a lot we actually just cold call them and dm them they cold email them. We don't even go through the process of asking for a connection. <laughs> we just DM them. <laughs> and to our surprise, it's like, oh, I heard you guys. I'm down to be in the podcast. And it just completely throws us off every single time. But I guess in a more relatability standpoint of how I did the real estate podcast, it's like, or they'd ask for a lot of connections. Every time I am able to get like pretty high power interviewer onto the podcast and typically I don't know if it's creepy, but I tend to like listen to their speaking engagements and I'm like, okay, I wait to the very end and be like, Hey, look, I have a podcast or have you on? And sometimes they're like, yes. But the thing that my tip is that I always ask for the phone number because I know that they're going to ignore my email. I'm like, Hey, can we change numbers? I can get more information. And then once I have them on, at the very end of the podcast, as we're doing like the, the closing statements, I always ask them, is there anyone else who you can introduce me to so I can have them on the podcast? And that helped us make my way through our own network. So for example, like I met the real estate developer who builds a Salesforce tower. Now I met the family who did like the Empire State Building. <laughs> you know, wow. I'm like asking the question of, is there anyone else in your network that you feel like qualify like yourself? <laughs> wow. And I guess like in an egotistic way, they're like, yeah, my friend here built the Empire State Building. <laughs> so that strategy typically worked in the past, but still a very similar approach to here as well. I still go to a lot of networking events and again, I always ask them like, like, oh my God, like, can I have you in the podcast? And this is where our mission is. And then the same question is like, how can you have anyone for me to introduce you to? Most of the time people are just like, yes, but the, the key kicker is you have to provide them a really solid experience on the podcast, right? Because you go to the entire podcast and they're just sitting there and just like, man, I totally waste my time. You're not going to get the best recommendation from them. But I also think that you think you're doing a pretty good job as well. So 
That's one of the strategies I, I use a lot back when I was getting started with everything. Well, luckily now, once you build up a strong enough brand, it's like, you can go around and be like, hey, like, would you want me to do my podcast? After a while, you realize there's going to be a shift. So the shift is you're no longer reaching out to people, but quality people start reaching out to you. Celebrities that you looked up to are like, hey, let me be on your podcast. And you're just like, this is crazy. <laughs> that's like the brand recognition but it takes a long time it takes like, like two years three years for to build up that reputation but once you have it you stop doing outreach and then people come to you now you talk to a ton of high achieving accomplished asian americans right and even in real estate whether it's on the podcast or just through your network now that you're meeting people and you build your brand what's it like to be connected with all these people learning about their stories and learning about their experiences. What have you learned of taken away from talking to these people? I learned a lot of things. Again, I think I mentioned this earlier that a lot of people just didn't give up. It's all about persistence. But at the end of the day, whether we look up to them or not, they, they're just human and they want the same things that we do. And we may look at their professional videos and be like, man, like this person must know it all. And they know everything, but as you dive deeper into their story, people are always driven by the same things, happiness, insecurity, self-worth, all these things. And then it's what I realized about them is that they're just like us. And another thing I realized about success is that sometimes it happens randomly. It's just a matter of pursuing your passion and goals and suddenly it catches fire and more people are being drawn to what you do. So I also learned that success, although we want to believe that it's a repeatable formula, it's not, it's really not. I talked to a lot of founders already, real estate, whatever people, and when they went on their second, third, fourth, fifth venture, it never succeeded again. And that just shows me that, you know, you have to pursue, there's it's, it's a lot of factors. It's luck, market timing, your personality, your team fit, a lot of things in order to make a person successful. But the overlying goal is that we all want the same things. We're all human. And it's about pursuing things you love that never feels like work. And eventually, if you keep pursuing it long enough and keep hustling at the idea, something is going to happen. And that's like the key ingredient of these people, these successful people that made it big. Because once you make it big and you're like, oh, I know it all, I can do it all. But you're still missing all these ingredients, that extra hustle that makes you successful. That's like the key difference of people who make it on. It's also the people who just have the courage to continue doing it and then worry on naysayers and continue iterating their idea. Because I know passion is thrown around a lot, but it takes a lot more passion and work than anyone ever thinks, right? To wake up every day and be like, I have no financial security, but I'm really appreciate it. Or feeling the magnitude of every single decision that you make, you know? Hey, can you withstand that? Do you have the mental toughness from that? Do you have the supporting team for that? Do you have supporting family members for that? It's a lot of different factors, right? Because now that I'm talking to people who are not entrepreneur based, I found that another common thing is you have to be in the right, I always, it's hard, I can't believe I'm saying this, but you have to be in the right upbringing environment where you have to be prepped in advance to be like, you can do this. You, you are destined for great things. Because a lot of it is a mindset. 
Because when you're going through all the hard stuff, I, I, I can do this. I'm awesome. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I can be an entrepreneur because it's a very lonely process. I guess you guys know already. And you have to have that internal affirmation and self-belief that Laura wasn't green to you almost all your life while you're upbringing your environment or even your school. If you're going to like a really good school, it helps you believe that you can do great things. And that goes a long way. Can you speak more to that, Brian? Like you talked about the randomness of success, but through all the interviews that you've done and all the people that you spoke to, what are some other common traits or themes that you've seen amongst all the people that you've talked to? I know this isn't a strong criteria, but just having parents that are extremely supportive of what you're trying to do, it makes all the difference. Because can, you can imagine like going to the entrepreneurial process and having your parents like, go back to your job, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, we'll go back to your job. <laughs> but just, just having those parents and supporting people or supporting everything around you to make things happen, whether that be your friends or family or girlfriend or significant other partner, it makes, it makes all the difference in the world. And I think you inadvertently just described what made you and the Asia Hustle Network successful, but what do you think are some traits you have that have given you the ability to get to the point that you are now? I am blindly optimistic about everything. And I, I truly believe that with me, my ignorance is a bliss. <laughs> I tend to throw out random ideas. I'm like, oh, this tends to be a really good idea without thinking about what crazy amount of work it takes to turn that into a reality. And I guess like my blind enthusiasm, optimisticness, motivates the team to make things happen. And I guess for the longest time, like, I didn't know that is a good quality to have, but talking to my advisors and investors and whatnot, they're like, having a visionary in the team makes all the difference. Having someone that the blind says, we can do it, sort of tears on the barrier for something that's never been done before. And I guess I inadvertently have that quality <laughs> for good or for bad that my team always like, ah, oh, here we go again with the crazy idea. And next thing we know, we're like, we're about to release it. <laughs> we're just like, all oh, that just happened, you know? Because I remember in like the second or third month of creating Asia also Network, I'm like, we should have annual conference in Vegas one day. <laughs> and now we just released that. Hey, we're having a conference in Vegas next year. <laughs> Talk to us more about the Asian Hustle Network conference in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. So the conference is going to be focused on Asian boldness. So no, this is not Asian excellence because we try to break out of the Asian minority model. And the idea behind this, this network is obviously surrounding ourselves with the theme of being uplifted, uplifting each other. But having the first Asian professional conference out there in a long time, it's a true honor. Also really scary because when we came up with the idea, we said, okay, I'm pretty sure there's, there's other Asian professional conference out there. We looked it up and we're like, oh my God, I think it's crazy. We're not the first one. What the hell? <laughs> so we so really moderate our, our South, out to like South, South by Southwest conference in Austin. And we want like a blend, right? We want to have people in BC, tech, food, small businesses, e-commerce, from I'd say to speak but also really form allyship with other Asian organizations and activists. So I'm very mindful and I have talked to organizations in the disability community, in the Adelphi community, these communities are typically overlooked by a lot of people. To give them some stage time during the halftime, come on stage to speak about the organization because 
you know, we try to be as open as we can to other people and every, like in the nuances of our community as well. And obviously the second day, it's going to be more media based. It's going to be like, we have our Asian A-list celebrities come on stage. We have big thing pools come on stage because we, at the end of the day, we still need more repetition in media. And then I guess like very miscellaneous, but club owners in Vegas are catching on that we are trying to host a conference. So we've been reached out by a couple of club owners that are like, Hey, come to our club. And then I'm like, right. Oh, we'll think about it. So they're like, Oh, like I'll give you top tables to see if you like it first. So for good or for bad, Maggie and I went to four or five comp table. <laughs> just like, all right, I guess we're gonna do an after party here. <laughs> so you have the Asian Hustle Network conference planned. Tell us about the Asian Hustle Network Accelerator. Oh, yes, yes. So we are coming out with an accelerator program and we plan to announce this during the, the conference. So basically the first cohort that we have is gonna be all women founders. And typically we want to focus on women in the e-commerce and sustainability industry. And on top of that, we want women of different ethnic backgrounds, like Southeast Asian, South Asian, just really be more inclusive because for the longest time, it's like we saw statistics of like women of color not being able to secure venture back funding. And we want to really want to break that mold, right? At least for the first cohort we do. This can be tailored towards like women founders. But after that, we want to run this full forums three or four times a year, mostly three, and be more inclusive. I have the focus on Asian women for the first one. And then from there, so anybody off of that and make it more open and available to everyone else. Wow. It sounds like you really leverage your brand to create all these pillars of different things that you're pursuing. Not only that, but you're very mindful in terms of who the underserved markets are and trying to uplift them. You're not just focused on the East Asian men that already have been accomplished with some things. I mean, that's really inspiring. Can you tell us more about your vision for Asian Hustle Network? Yeah. So my vision is that I want us to be an ecosystem one day that supports each other, uplifts each other, that helps each other tear down the, all of the gatekeeping. It would not work. So I guess like the bigger vision is like, we can create our own talent, push our talent all the way up, open any sort of gate to connection we might need and really help people realize that this is true abundance when we all work together. And we're not in competition with each other. This is when like set aside our differences, focus on things that we have in common, which the great thing about the Asian community is that very community based at heart. Right. I think we've shown that during the pandemic where it's like, we're very adhered to like weird masks or vaccinated or whatever, like just really focusing on the good thing that you should bring is that we're hardworking, we're talented, but we still have a lot to unlearn to do in terms of generational trauma and unlearning some of the stuff that we're taught to each other or from each other. And just the grand vision is like, we have a conference to highlight Asian talent inspired in new generation. And now we have the accelerator funding, venture fund, whatever, to support people who are pursuing their passionate ideas, having our network to find mentorship to the new generation, having this people rise back to the top, you know, to go back to our conference and now get back to the new generation, create that ecosystem right there. At the same time, it's like helping people who are in the entertainment space break through, you know, and essentially our Asian Netflix model, now we have the medium to do it. We have 
the, the community to do. It's like, if we have Asian members go to like Hollywood and they're getting rejected by Netflix or whatever, or Hulu, they have, they can turn to us and support them. But at the same time, it's like being very anti-elitist and opening up our gates to everyone. It's very important to me because I feel like throughout my entire life, I am very much an underdog. I mean, just being in the venture space, you're dealing with a lot of Ivy League people. You know, I, I went to went to UC and seeing that a lot of things that happened to me is through pure hustle and pure luck as well. It's like, I'm pretty fortunate to be in this position, but a lot of people are not. So how do I continue opening the gate for people who I consider way more talented than I am that should be doing bigger things in their life that are not given the same opportunity. And I want to be the one that helps people get through and get to the next level and pursue whatever passion they have. Because I believe that's for the greater good of the future of our, our community. You mentioned generational trauma a good amount of times in this podcast. And you obviously spent a lot of time working on yourself and opened up your world and understood how the world works, understand how money works. I know that you grew up in San Gabriel, Los Angeles, in a very modest neighborhood. A lot of your neighbors were from immigrants from different countries. Your parents grew up in Vietnam. Even though you grew up in the U.S., you're even put in ESL classes. So can you uh, talk no, about your... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up and how you were able to learn more about the world? Yeah, man. I don't know where to start. <laughs> so uh, I grew up with a pretty humble upbringing. I think at the time I had like five siblings in one bedroom for the two bedroom house that's 600 square foot. And we saw this as a normal way of life. We never really questioned anything. And I guess over the longest time, I was always wondering why my mom would never allow me to sleep over at other kids' house or let other kids visit our house because she's trying to protect us and how poor we were. <laughs> like really thinking about things. Our weekends were spent like at yard sales or thrift shops. And this is our idea of fun. It's like, oh, I got a new stuffed animal at a yard sale. <laughs> you know? or I got jeans or something at a yard sale. This is completely normal. I never really questioned any of it. It wasn't until like, I started doing speech and debate back in my high school that I started competing against like kids from like very affluent high schools, and affluent neighborhoods. And I got the opportunity. This time I was a teenager. Parents probably have a little control of what I choose to do. So I'm like, okay, like, what if they're asking me to come over after school to hang out with them? All right, I come on after school. Come over, it's like a rude awakening. I'm like, wow, you have two cars and you have your own bedroom. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I never realized I was still sheltered. Hindsight <laughs> yeah. 2020, where we are right now, we're at the, the families I visited when I was like in high school. And that really blew my mind. I was more interested in talking to the parents than, than my friends. I'm just pretty sad. Because I'm just like, wait a minute, like, Blah, 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 Mr. or Mrs. What do you, what, you have two cars? One for work and one for fun? Like how, if I'm watching them have one car, like how, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, what do you do? And they would be like, oh yeah, like I do investing. Like, and I was taught all my life that investing was gambling by my parents. But they're just like, oh, like you put money in. Totally. You lose money. And that, that really got to me. I'm like, wait a minute, am I thinking things wrong? Like, I thought I was supposed to get straight A's and be a doctor or something. Like, my mom always preached to me all the time when I was a kid, you know? And then talking to them, it's like, wow, there's an alternative to life. 
And that's what I mean by like generational trauma and everything. Cause a lot of our parents and grandparents came from a place of war and poverty and scarcity. And then to them, it's like, I had to get secured this food. If I know my family's going to die. And if I take this food, some other family will die. And that's like the mentality that we've been adopted. Or some of us sort of adopt this mentality with the way that we run our, our lives and business right now, even though we're in a better place, absolutely more abundance. That's what I mean by the word generational trauma, because I face it myself as I generation seriously. My mom always told me, Corey, help us like, not all of us can succeed. We're all predestined to do things. Like, you have to get straight A, you have to get that slot in this school, otherwise it's a zero sum game. And I guess it never sat well with me because at heart, I'm always been very open to people. I just remember distinctly when I was a junior in high school, I was, I started driving like this new old car already. And I saw like this person that, that walked across the street and tripped and fell. And I immediately pulled up my car to the side, got off the car and like helped this person walk across the street. And I came home, I was expecting like, my parents to like, be like, oh, that's a creep. And they're like, would you touch him? If he goes to you, if they, <laughs> blah, blah, you know, there's like a Asian word for it is that you try to do good and help people and you get screwed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just telling me that don't help people. Like you're, you're going to bring more harm to yourself. They can sue you, you can blame you or not. I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> I'm so confused. Uh, but going back to the, the parent story of visiting people's houses, I really brought me into the world. Like how, maybe I don't know how money works. Maybe I don't know what's out there. And I started being very curious about it. I guess the most embarrassing thing was like when I got to college and I finally was like talking to girls and they're like, hey, let's go out and eat. And I'm like, dude, all my life, like I never ate out. Like, I don't, I got so nervous of ordering food at Denny's. You know, I don't, <laughs> I, I was the way asking, what do you want to order? I'm like, this is like the best restaurant I've ever been to in my life. I, I don't know how to order. And that's, that's, that's literally my first two, three years in college. And I know Albert, your brother, Will, still clowns me in that. I'm like, well, you're such a weird person in college, you know? Like, because I was learning social skills. I don't have any of it. So it's my pretty string, like, low-income property and everything. But it gave me a about money. And then when I also had the opportunity to, like, work, finally, understand, stop investing, and reading all these books and got in real estate development. That's when I'm like, wow, this is a true abundance. And I think to myself, if someone like me can do some of this, where is someone who's more talented than me is now having the opportunity to? And I started looking back to people that I grew up with. I'm just like, this person would consistently kick my ass back in school and get straight A's. Like, why are they still working? Like, not to say anything bad, but like, why are they still working in their perspective? Careers, yeah. A, a relatively entry level person, and they're so talented. And it all comes down to like mindset and being the right people at the right time. But a lot of us back at home still refuse to move away from home because it's so safe, but because I have the, the, the I guess like the, the life, the accident of making new friends and being speech and debate. And I haven't said, wait a minute, it's more. And I got me curious. I find that I'm a little safe now. That's when I met a lot more different people. And I understood like how, what does it mean to be successful having a podcast and like having to understand that a lot of people who achieve things at a young age are like also in an environment where they have parents like us, you know, it's like, yeah, like, you can do it. What are you talking about? There's no limitation. And like, a lot of us can relate that just us growing up and say, I was like, well, I can do this. 
I want to do this. She's like, no, you can't. You're too stupid. <laughs> 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 it kind of holds you back for the longest time. Well, you have to unlearn all of that slowly to realize, hey, why not me? You start asking that question, well, why not me? Why can't I do it? And you start doing things, you know? What else have you unlearned and what uh, mindset do you try and keep? I try to unlearn a lot of things about money and stigma and what it means to be in abundance. I was one of those kids that was taught like money is good or all evil. You have too much of it and you're evil. I had to unlearn that. I learned that money is not just a tool to make the world a better place. Money is a way to enable other people. And I learned that money really shows us who we are as people or at the core of who we are. So I had to unlearn all that stuff. I guess my mentality now, I always want to have the beginner's mindset. Everything that I do, no matter how much I think I know about something, I will always take a step back to learn and listen to other people. There's sometimes where I'm just like, why do I listen to that? <laughs> but most of the time it's like, oh, like, I didn't realize that from that perspective because your foundation can always seem much stronger if you take a step back and put aside your ego. There's always that one line that just changes your perspective about anything that you do. And I always have them the beginner's mindset of, of approaching people, learning, being humble, listen to people's story, but at the same time, understand that whatever we choose to do, consistency is the key to victory, right? It, it's about taking the right precautions to form the right foundation. So then you're building on top of something really strong and knowing that if you continuously work at this every single day. And no matter how small it is, it could be one action, it could be five minutes, it could be an hour, it could be many hours. And as long as you continue working every day, you're going to produce this momentum that pushes you forward. So eventually you're just like, wow, like I'm actually doing and evolving to the person that I always want to be. And I feel, I feel that's the most important. I wanted to let you know that what you're doing is incredibly impressive. I love your vision and when, what you've done so far. I wish I had this when I was younger, like 10 years ago when I was trying to figure out the world and young people seeing a lot of examples for themselves and seeing that they can do what these people have done, I think is incredible. I love how ambitious you are too and everything that you're trying to do. How can people find you, the Asian Hustle Network? Yeah, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Clubhouse. I don't know if anyone still uses Clubhouse. But just go ahead and Google us. We're, we're pretty much everywhere in every single platform. And we really thank the community for being with us and believing to our mission. And I thank you guys too. You know, I thank you that, that you three are such powerhouses on this podcast and being extremely humble. I have read off all your miles, by the way. And I'm just like, <laughs> you guys are extremely impressive and really happy to be in this podcast today. If we went to the conference in 2022, where do we get tickets? Oh, yes. You can find tickets on our website right now. So asianhousenetwork.com. We have the link right in the middle. It's going to stay there for a long time. <laughs> so I'm happy to, to find tickets there. But right now, just to be upfront, we're trying to secure a big enough sponsor to give out tickets to lower income or people who don't have the opportunity to come. Because it's always been really important for me to always give back to the community. I know these type of conferences have the intangible way of helping people change their lives. And I love the two helping the people. Great. Appreciate your time. This has been incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Really appreciate it. Of course. Hey, everyone. 
Thanks for making it to the end of the episode. You can find show notes, links, and contact info for us and our guests at our website, willandlee.show. We love feedback, so please feel free to drop us a note with any thoughts or suggestions. Lastly, if you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate you adding ratings to our episodes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.